Welcome to another exciting edition of Social Sessions. Today I'm thrilled to have a special guest with us, none other than Andy Henderson, the driving force behind the success of the beloved indie rock band The Daikinis. Their breakthrough came in 2007 with their electrifying debut album Nothing Means Everything, and Andy's here to share the inside scoop on that incredible journey. We'll be diving into the highs and the lows of life on the road, exploring the fascinating world of the music industry, and having a candid chat about how success can shape your perspective and handle the pressures that come with it. Get ready for an intimate conversation with Andy as we unravel the story behind the music. Without further ado, a warm welcome to Andy Henderson. How are you doing, Andy? I'm great, mate. All yeah. good. Hi, really good to have you here. Um, so I'm just going to kind of what are they always always kind of just take people back to their childhood. How it was kind of how? So obviously we came kind of come from the same area. So what was it like for you growing up and coming old, Andy? Um, I. Uh, Brilliant, to be honest with you, mate. I came from originally Drumchapel's where our family came from. Right. We moved to Cumbernauld, I think I was like five, going six, just starting primary school. So life in Cumbernauld's a lot different for life in Drumchapel. We were right. always back at Drumchapel because that's where my, my real dad came from and all our family was still there. So it's a big, big culture shock for Drumchapel to Cumbernauld. Cumbernauld's quite posh compared aye, to Drumchapel. But I like Cumbernauld. Aye. I still like Cumbernauld. So... Growing up in school and all that, I mean, obviously when we were growing up, it was all kind of different areas and stuff like that. And we were kind of fed different areas, didn't really go on. I was going with you anyway, Andy, we were always good pals. But did you ever get, were you ever involved in that kind of scene? Like, were you ever involved growing up in that kind of scene? Aye, I would say in my teenage years, I kind of got a wee bit lost, probably between the age of like 13 to maybe 17, hanging about with the Ryan crowd. I mean, happens to a lot of young young men. But I did die. I mean, done a few years. I probably up to no good, causing my parents a lot of hassle. But uh, it wasn't really me. Aye. And I knew at the time I was faking it. I wasn't Aye. a bad guy. I wasn't a bad kid. I was just trying to fit in with other people, and you, you get led astray a wee bit. But Aye. And it never really lasted too long for me. It's really easy to get, and and it's been like um, something that we speak about often on here is like how young people uh, have got it hard and grown up, especially in this day and age where you've got the the pressures. And I think COVID, we had like Karen McCluskey on here. I don't know if you know Karen, but Karen was head of the, kind of like the violence reduction unit. And we were just talking about the kind of creeping into the gangs and that and stuff again. And um, we were just talking about how young people are kind of isolated to know, maybe austerity. What do you think of that? And did you think there's anything like back and coming out? I know you're not there to know, but can you see the end like that kind of creeping back in. I know you've got kids yourself and... It's it's hard for me to say, comment on that. I can only comment on what I experienced in my teenage years and I think maybe then for somebody like myself it would have just been like, um, you know, you want to be accepted. And if you've got your big ganger, your pals, your mates and they accept you into it, that's probably how you end up in that scenario. And I, I don't know if it's any harder now than it was back then for us. Times are different, obviously. Um, I don't know, but I, I can imagine that is true, aye? Like, oh, no, there's, de- I could, there's definitely a rise. I mean, the stats are there to tell us that there's a rise in crime and all that, do you know what I mean? But So your saving grace was music, um, and obviously you're going to need to take me on the journey here because I'm not really... <laughs> um, I was a kind of dance guy. I was more like up paps on a Friday night. Um, so you're going to need to kind of guide me. So when did music come into your life? You, did you do music at school and stuff like that? Aye, um, music in school, my whole family love music. It probably comes to my mum and dad, Aye. basically. Um, 
parties at the weekend in the house or Christmas, everything was just heavily music, always music. And they bought me a guitar randomly for my Christmas one year. Um, <laughs> a kind of Spanish acoustic style guitar. And the same year they bought me the double white album with the Beatles. And I was in primary school, so I was relatively young for that type of music. Aye, aye. But I fell in love with it. Fell in love with the guitar. Brian was a great singer for a young age. Like, that is amazing. He was always singing. Through even primary school when you do like, you're in the, the, the gym hall and everybody's singing the, the hymns and everything else. Brian was up in his knees and the veins were bulging <laughs> his neck and he was singing his heart out. He loved it. So we probably didn't realise at the time, but we were all quite musical. Um, and then my older brother, Alan, when I had got that guitar, he excelled. He became so much better on the guitar than I did. He got his own guitar. And then we were just musical from then on. Like, we were just always in bands and always playing. And there was just always something going on. Because you talk about, obviously, on here, how how different things change people and how different things like take you on a different path for maybe what what the path you could go down because we know boys Andy we all know boys that haven't done the wrong path and stuff happened to me and I was went away for a long time through whatever um, um bad choices whatever you want to make it do you know what I mean and even though there's elements of stuff that today with my trial that's it, it was still bad choices there was still stuff that I could have done differently um so obviously like with you with music and stuff how was it how did you make that kind of leap for going like hanging about the streets drinking maybe drinking but fast stuff like how how did you make that kind of change into a musical person how was that was it hard or was it did you think ever think to say what am i doing here or i think it was probably relatively easy for me and my two brothers because everything worked perfect at the time right and what i mean by that is we met john kerr the drummer for the band for a very young age he stayed in green falls where we came from so we were pals before we were in a band we aye, all aye. grew up together we were all mates and it just turned out that john was one of the best drummers aye. in the entire world aye. so music for us getting into the studio and taking us off the street it just kind of happened just there wasn't a big decision about it or anything like that we just all started being in bands and then you're in high school, you're learning, you're in music, so you meet other guys that are in bands, and then it just becomes your environment. So we're in the studio when other guys are drinking. Aye. Even when it came to like the Daikini days, like what people don't see is the hard work and the years before that's went into that Aye. product. People think, oh, the Daikini's got success relatively quick. That's only what they've seen. Aye. The years of graph before that, the years of rubbish bands, terrible songs, terrible gigs. We were gigging in Glasgow and bars and stuff like that. We were 12, 13 years old. Why is that? See, I never knew that. I, I, I always like... Not as the Daikinis, all in different bands. Like mm -hmm. Brian and Alan were always in bands together, but I was never in a band with them. Mm -hmm. I was in my own bands. I was trying to make it as a singer in my own band aye, and aye. all that. Horrendous, mate. <laughs> but that's when we were cutting our craft basically Aye. at a very young age because it was all i just feel as if like i remember you kind of hanging about the streets and seeing you sometimes maybe for like 15 16 and i didn't know you like really well but i knew you like to say hello and whatever and then i just feel as if i seen you one day and you looked like a guy at the band i just that was like that for me but Aye. obviously i didn't see the the work that's going on and i never knew you were in a band at 13 so 
Does music give you, does, does, do you get a kind of discipline with music? Is there definitely. a discipline? Aye. Definitely. I think if anybody that's got the patience to learn an instrument, they've got discipline. You know, it's like, it's the same with a martial art or an instrument or anything like that. Like, and I suppose there's probably so many other things are the same. But if they've got that patience to really master something, aye, they've got discipline. Definitely. So with that kind of discipline, not... Is there a, is it, can anybody make it, Andy, if you if you put the graft in, or do some people like, people say about Brian had that kind of magical thing about him, is it sometimes you, you've the, the talent, or can you work hard and become? I definitely think he's maybe like a guitar player, or a bass player, or a pianist, or a drummer. You work hard enough, you work hard enough, you will get to a level where you could probably play professional, right? But I think a front man or a singer, there's something. There's just something else. You, know, you need something about you. you need some, I, I don't know what it is, you know, like Brian, with being the singer of the Kings, he just, he's just a special guy. Even to this day, like, just living normal life. Like, Brian's a special guy, like. No, I've got a lot of time for Brian. I really do. Um, he's, he's a lovely guy. You've actually got a lovely family together, Andy. Um, but, when did you realise personally, when did you go, do you know what, I, this is maybe something that we could do here, man, we could make this here? Well, Brian and Aaron were in another band called Iota, Iota, for years, and they were good, they were a decent band, but they were just a bit kind of, it's a bit cheesy and all that, they were just young. And then when the Daikinis came about, I was never in the Daikinis at first, so they were wanting to put this band together, and they had an idea, it was always going to be John Kerr and Brian and Aaron, and they were struggling for a bass player, so I was like, I'll play bass because this was always the excuse for them not to get the band together. I was like, I've not got a bass player, I've not got a bass player. So I was like, I'll play bass. Don't know how to play bass. I'll learn, you know. John, the drummer, I'll learn. So that's how it started. And then we got Stephen Ramsey in who went to school with Brian, a great guitar player. And had the same mindset as us, just work hard, you know. And like, that's how it, that's basically how it started, you know, like... That's how the band got together. Um, we started rehearsing in the pub in Greenfolds, aye. which was John's auntie's pub. Is that the Mallard? The Mallard. Mallard so we would rehearse in the back room in the Mallard. And I knew we were good. We were a good band. We were playing covers and all that. But then we wrote Waiting for Go, which is one of our singles, very early on. And I knew then. And I, had the, I wasn't a solidified member of the band yet. I was aye. just the guy that was helping out playing about a bass for them until they go to a bass player. And I, once we wrote that song, I thought, I'm fucking I'm going, the bass player. I'm going nowhere. <laughs> I'm going nowhere. <laughs> like, this is, we're onto something here. So, obviously, like, when was it like the, because obviously I know you've been at Teen the Park, we'll go into that kind of later on and stuff like that. So, when was your first kind of gig that you done that you went, do you know what, like, this is, like, you could just feel it. Obviously, there must have been a feeling in there that night. Aye. Basically, we wrote, sorry, we wrote a bunch of songs and we recorded them. We went to a half-decent recording studio, so we knew we had these good songs. We maybe had like six or seven songs, enough to do a half-hour set anyway. So we thought, we'll do a gig, but we're not going to just do any gig. We're going to arrive on the scene. We're going to sort of manipulate this situation and make us bigger than we are. Aye. And we've done, we done that pretty well. Like We sold it the 350 capacity room in the ABC without MD even hearing a demo. 
Aye, I know that's that is crazy. And this was like before social networking was massive. Like we only had like MySpace and stuff Aye. like that at first. Um, but word the mouth, and we just kind of like bullshitted our way a wee bit into that first gig. Aye. And luckily enough for us, we we pulled it off. And so that was our very first gig in the ABC in Glasgow, sold out. And we got a phone call before we went on stage to say, "Can you hold off your stage time an hour because the." executive of Virgin has missed his flight Virgin Records to come and see you right we had every record label at that gig that night aye it's so <laughs> good aye. aye it must have been well, it must have been was it like when you're playing football and you know the scouts are there aye. was it like, kind of like that was it that kind of aye. feeling Brian was spewing up blood <laughs> it was aye because he's we had just rehearsed so hard that his voice he's fucked his throat and he's like taking all sorts of like I, I can't remember what it was but Coding or whatever aye, it was, he was taking the time and he had fucked his throat and he was spitting up blood and all that. And nerves were horrendous because, you know, as I say, first gig. <laughs> you don't really like because obviously you see, you see your videos and stuff, and you and you probably with every band. I mean, I've actually heard people talking about people spewing and all that before they go on stage, and it is, it must be so nerve wracking. It's oh, horrifying. Um, <laughs> have you ever had a, a crowd where it's no worked? Like when you've been like, oh, that was, didn't go down too well. Have you ever had that or have you always been lucky? <laughs> oh, we've had some, some stinking gigs sometimes. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, you do like, you know, know this term, right? But when you first get signed, you do what's called the toilet tour. And Aye. it's basically shithole venues all over the UK. You go to every nook and cranny of the UK. You're in tour for about two months, right? We'd done some horrendous gigs in there for nobody was there. Aye. Right. So we were like, at this time, we were pretty big in Scotland, right? Aye. And then we ventured in England and nobody gave a fuck. <laughs> like at that point, aye. no one cared. So I we'd done some bad gigs, aye. Definitely. You were up against some some real talent at that time. I mean, I, this is only other people telling me, but I wasn't, didn't, wasn't there, Andy, but I've, I heard a lot of people say you were a couple of years, even a year before or a couple of years before, you would have went huge and it was was there an aspect to that kind of indie rock taking off at that point that maybe these were just in and amongst a kind of convoluted kind of oh, music industry i don't know even i wouldn't say that that held us back or maybe that stopped us from being bigger than we were but see at that point when we were coming out and before that and that time was electric for music it was just like the best time to be about for who was some of the bands that were running about that time you had like arctic monkeys and oh aye um well just to put it in perspective for you like me and brian went to a gig in the barfly in clyde street in glasgow so it's like a two or three hundred capacity venue it's quite small downstairs and we only went because a band that i followed for glasgow called kane or raising kane was supporting a band down that night and the band they were supporting was the arctic monkeys right what's it so we phoned up on a day of the gig and got tickets to the Arctic Monkeys and the Barfly. So that paints a picture of how good the music scene was. Aye. When they were actually like... On a aye. Wednesday night or something, Thursday night, I Mad. seen the Arctic Monkeys and the Barfly by accident because I was going to see a Glasgow band. And that was by the time you were a wee bit better than them at that time? You would have been probably a wee bit more... The Daikinis would have been right at the very start. We weren't... I don't even know if we were had done many gigs at that point. People knew who we were. What age were you, Andy, when... Because I, I only remember Bits and Bobs, do you know what I mean? What age were you when kind of the, the Daikinis formed? And when, what was your first label, the first label you signed for? I think I was, I think I was 20, 21 or 22 when the band really took off. The first label we signed for 
um, was King Touch Recordings. Like, uh, and then we went on to sign with a company called Lavota, which was like a kind of offshot of like uh, Sony records. Aye. That's where the money, all the financing comes from Sony. But the first, the, uh, the very start, it was King Touch Recordings. And <clears throat> what was it like, obviously, playing in King Touch and that? Because I've heard that like that, some of the gigs in there are electric. Um, obviously, it was another place I didn't frequent, you know what I mean? I was usually <laughs> at some sort of nightclub, but um, what was King Touch like? Was that, some people say that's some of the best nights I've had. That's even better than on kind of maybe Teen Department. I've heard people saying that. It's, it's amazing, mate, because like, we, 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 what happened was we went to a competition on a Sunday afternoon called Your Sound in King Tut's. Not even knowing it was a competition. We just went because we knew there was a thing on for new bands. We took it, basically what it was is you took your demos along, all these other bands there, and then they played the demos on the, the screen. And I think at the end, they, they had kind of like voted who was the best newcomer band or whatever. And I think it was something to do with getting a chance at playing teen apart maybe Aye. something like that anyway so we just went and got steaming as we Aye. did at the time fucking mortal drunk and Dave McGeekin who runs the F concerts runs King Tuts came up to us at the table and says like you guys have won you've won all this beer that's the last thing we need more beer you've won all this beer and all that well, who's your manager I've not got a manager <laughs> just fucking arrogant guys to come along we've not got a manager and he's like listen come in and see me this week when you're sober and I'll speak to you then. And we went in and seen Dave, and that's when things really started to take off for us. They looked after us big time. Aye. Sorted out our first ever gig in King Tut's, sold it with that, and it was just monumental. It was just Aye. memories. Some of my King Tut's memories are like, they'll just, they'll be with me forever. Like, Aye. I will, <clears throat> obviously, you'll know, I've been in King Tut's a couple of times, once or twice, and some of the names that you see on there that, that, that played there before they were big are, are massive. Can you tell us a couple of names? Because I know they'll be, I, I can't name them, but I know well, I remember you know, looking. Legendary, as the Oasis got signed there, didn't they? So they, they supported somebody in King Tut's. Is that right? Is that where the Oasis that's, got signed? Uh, that's like the most kind of famous story out there, aye. Um, aye, everybody's played King Tut's. I mean, there a few years ago, the Kills, after they played the Headline Transmit, went back to King Tut's and played at midnight at King Tut's. Did they, aye? It's just, it's a legendary place. Magical like, place, aye. Aye. Definitely, mate. And it's, I think that's what makes your gig so special because you know the special nights it's went and done in there. Aye. And you're getting to play there. Aye. aye. So what, um, obviously we talk about, sometimes we talk about the kind of darker side of things and the kind of harder side. And well, I know like the music industry is kind of rife with kind of addiction, mental health problems, um, stuff like that. How, how does that come about? Because a lot of people would say, how do you, how 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 can you say you've got mental health, you're gigging, doing this? How does that come about? Because obviously I can imagine you're away from your family, loads of different stuff. Drugs was never really a thing that was prevalent in our band. Like, people dabbled Aye. off every now and then and stuff like that, but nobody in the band was a regular drug user. Like Aye. that, surprisingly. You know? Aye. <laughs> Aye, nobody in the band was. Like, I smoked a bit of weed every now and then. Like, that was quite common in tour because you were tired, you were trying to come down for gigs and stuff like that. Cocaine was never really an issue for anybody in the band. Aye. I don't know, we just weren't really into drugs all that big. I mean, I can tell you some funny stories about the times we did take drugs and, <laughs> and made an arse things. <laughs> uh, like, my first ever time 
I didn't even know what NDMA was and we uh, were in tour and we played a festival called The Great Escape in Brighton. It's a massive festival and the cooks were headlining. They were playing in the pier. So they were having an after show party and it was like the Queen's Hotel or something like that. We were all invited to go. So we went there and our manager, Jenny, turned and said to me, you want some MDMA? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what Is MDMA that your is. Manager or She's like, oh, it's like ecstasy, but it's like, and I'm like, aye, give me that. She's like, give it seven away with this bag, and I didn't know a clue what I was doing. Came back up like half an hour later, I've pissed in front in front of everybody in the lobby <laughs> because I was so disorientated, didn't know where the toilet was. <laughs> so they phoned the police on me. I've pissed in the lobby. I've been walking about in the, this party, which is just basically all the famous bands that were played Aye. and it was like me cactus on the table and I have to ask cactus and I'm hitting people with the cactus <laughs> putting spikes in their arm just being a fucking pollution Aye. and then I go for the police come and take me for the for there I can't speak by this time take me back to my hotel because I've got a hotel card in my wallet phone our tour manager for the desk he comes down and gets me takes me back up to the room I'm sharing with my brother my brother says I go into the bathroom and he says he can hear water going everywhere. And he's like, what's going on? He comes into the bathroom. Like, I've got the toilet seat done. Aye. And I'm just peeing on the lid. Just getting <laughs> okay. myself soaked. So that was my experience with drugs. So then uh, um, I never really took them much after that, to be honest. See, but I did see with other bands. Aye. I mean, I could tell you some mad things. Like We'd done a lot of touring with The View. And they were kind of like signed back to the same record label. And I guess it's basically that. It's like Sony. And they had this woman going to with them who basically distributed their drugs so that they weren't going to overdose. Like we were in a, a hotel called the Key West in London and everybody was partying and like this is Lassie who works with the record company and she's like building, biting pills in half to get the band. To get them so to make sure. To, and aye. Like, fucking like, aye. Mad, mate. How is it to, obviously the view are a, like a legendary band and all like how was it turned with, was it, because obviously they were a bit mad, weren't they? They were a bit kind of like, Aye, we loved it because like we got on great with the boys for the view and had some good laughs and I loved the band as well. They were great. Yeah, they're brilliant. Like such a good live band, um, which was overshadowed just by their antics off stage. Like, people forget how good the view actually were. Aye. Um, and still are, basically, aye. But oh, mate, some good times. Aye. aye. No, I know, I've, I've heard obviously people talking, you see obviously the stories like with Pete Doherty and you see all this, but... I think Kyle for the view um, done a program no longer about mental health and addiction and stuff. And I know he's got his act together now, and he's got his wee family, and he's doing really well. And um, his story is the kind of stories that is is it need to be told. And it's like the stories about how any kind of industry, I think that any kind of fame or any kind of stuff can just swallow you up. Mm -hmm, Do you know what definitely. I mean? It's um, so. Do you know, is there any stories like, can I, that you know yeah, that were kind of no, never ended so well? Like, kind of bad stories where. Uh, you definitely, you lose your grasp on reality being in a band and you start to believe your own bullshit. Because nothing's real. None of it's real. Aye. It can be taken away from you at any point, and it does. It Aye. happens to everybody, happened to us. And you've. You're not living in the real world anymore. You're living in this fucking false world that you've created in your mind that everybody else is holding it up because they're all hoping to make some money off you. And it's not real. Aye. And that, that's how the mental health thing does come into it. Because I remember 
we were supposed to be the next biggest thing. You know, they're the I Scottish killers, you know, we were on the front page of the paper, we were on NME, done the NME too, are we? The Fratellis and us, right? We were like, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be massive and this is what we were, they made us believe this, made us believe how big we were going to be and then it never happened. None of the songs charted, we never got the support off Radio 1 and I remember being in a hotel room in Sheffield, we were playing and we just found out that I think it was like clean up your eyes or something had midweek at like 20, 22 in the charts. And we were like, we basically knew if we never top 40 with that single, we were going to get dropped after. Aye. You kind of knew that that was mm -hmm. what was going to happen. Not straight away, but. Is it ruthless, aye? Aye. Is it? And we never charted. And I remember being in the hotel room, so depressed, so frustrated. You're just a young guy, like your family's not there. Aye. You've only got the other young guys that's with you, your tour manager. And then you've got to go and play a gig that night and you feel like a failure and you feel like everything that you you dreamt of was just going to disappear. Aye. And everything, you, you also, like, your parents and your family all expected so much for you, like, not because, not, not their fault, you know. No, They're hoping yeah. for big things for Aye. you as well, you know, and then you feel like, fuck, man, this is crashing, like, it's Do you hard. feel a wee bit like a... Like obviously, I, I like I let I, you hear it a lot. Like we, um, like what you're saying, we just at, at any walk of life, I think. But the music thing is, I kind of dream into it. Like you, if you, you look at these things and you, and if somebody's putting you up on a pedestal, and then just pulling it away, mm -hmm. um, I can imagine that would be heartbreaking. Do you know what I mean? It's like I uh, it was heartbreaking because I know, like obviously, you hear quite a lot. I don't know if, like, obviously, I don't know if you would agree, but similar kind of things with, like, people that go into Big Brother, and it's like, there's a, there's a name for it. I don't know, it's like something like 10 Minute Fame or something like that. But these guys come out of Big Brother as well, and they're, like, massive for, like, a few months, and then they just die out. Mm -hmm. And then um, you hear them, guys killing themselves, Mug Muggy Mike, remember Muggy Mike? I was ashamed, you know what I mean? And some of these things, so... Would, obviously, I know, like, I don't, it's up to, like, how far do you want to talk about it and stuff, but how, did was there, a, in your band, was there a lot of kind of mental health after that? Was there a lot of problems with mental health, not Andy? Definitely. Probably even unrecognised at the time, the damage that it was doing to us, we didn't know. Um, but I would say I definitely, and I know my young brother Brian had definitely been damaged by it. Um... And you live with that for the rest of your life. Like we, your lives were nowhere near normal for the best mm -hmm. part of ten years, and you put your heart and soul into something as well. For it on the surface of things, at the time you feel like it's failed, but it's but it's not failed because you've made your albums. Aye, that's there forever. And you've and got I'm a success. Super, you know I mean? exactly. Aye. Like you, you're measuring success through money and your fame then which is wrong mm -hmm. but at the time that's that's what you were yeah, that's not what you were hoping for in terms of that's all you ever wanted in no. your band but Aye. the bigger you are the more money you make Aye. the longer you get to be in your band and the longer you get to make music um because ultimately when the money stops coming in and it becomes harder and then you're grown up you've got a family mm -hmm. you, you, it's no viable to be mm -hmm. in the band seven days a week anymore you need a job and all that so like so I definitely, definitely badly affects you, your mental health. I suppose that you probably um, start living in a world where your kind of ego's inflated and you've got a kind of, as you say, it's a false sense of reality. Um, 
and it's probably similar to like trauma in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like if you look up the definition of trauma, you could probably say that what you experience through that oh, is definitely. pretty traumatizing. Uh, do you know what I mean? Definitely. Because you're going through a process of being who you want to be and who you aspire to be and then for it to get shut down. And you mentioned Radio 1, and we had a wee talk about this before, Annie. I didn't really know that, right? But obviously for like the viewers and stuff. So Radio 1, I've got a lot of pull in on, on how well a band they... Basically, when, uh, at that point, um, at that time when we were in the music industry, that's how it worked. Like uh, uh, Radio 1, if Radio 1 gave you the support and you got like a playlist on Radio 1, an A playlist, which basically meant you'd get played in every show, mm -hmm during the day on Radio 1. That was when, that's how you make it. If you don't get the playlist on Radio 1, your band won't make it. Mm -hmm. You make it to a certain level mm -hmm. and you'll maybe kind of survive, but don't get that playlist, your band's dead. And how how do they, do you, obviously you probably won't, you might not know this, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway, like how how do they choose? Do they, is it, do they choose on merit or are they, is it, is it, is it corrupt? Is it like, there's, is there things going on there at the background? I mean, like, I do think that there is a, an element of corruption involved in it in terms of, like, they do choose who they want to promote and who they don't want to promote. Um, their reasoning, I don't really know. Like, you obviously get artists that are unbelievably good um, that will just arrive in Radio 1 <laughs> no matter how much they don't want to back <laughs> them, they'll become big <laughs> anyway. But that's basically how it works. It's... That's like an rarity, but like, and it, to touch back on the mental health thing, like being completely honest with you, the highs that you experience for being in the band or be playing live or recording your music, when that was all disappeared and you were only hitting those anymore, like you're looking for something else. Mm -hmm. Even subconsciously, you don't really know that's happening to you, but you're looking for something else to hit that. You're drinking. I was da heavily drank when mm -hmm. the band finished. Every night of the week I would drink, easy, easy. You were used to it in tour, I know, right. but then I was hitting it hard when I came home, drinking a morning, mm -hmm. not a very good sign. Uh, I ended up addicted to painkillers, uh, prescription medication, I ended up taking an accidental overdose. The, that was all mm -hmm. on the back of the band. Right. It was. I was either looking for something to numb the pain mm -hmm. of the band failing, or I was trying to find new things to make me high give me uh, high again you know like fill uh, that void fill the void that's exactly it um things i don't really speak about openly to many people is uh i did have like i, I went through periods where i, I was addicted to gambling mm -hmm. um which that, that was for years and it got worse and worse and worse until it was addressed uh, um but all stems for that one thing all stems for that like it seems as though obviously it's similar i mean obviously it's two completely different things but when i'm in prison um i can't i can't um i can't knock somebody for taking drugs to get to escape from that reality mm -hmm. um and i know it's different it's totally different but it, when if you take it right down to the root it's probably very similar in the way that in prison you're trying to escape your reality but what you're doing as well is trying to escape the reality of no becoming that thing and it's probably you'll know yourself Andy is that quite prevalent then in the music scene like for people that don't make it to have poor mental health like definitely aye mm -hmm. definitely aye I probably the same as people that have made it as well like most artistic people um 
are probably quite vulnerable mentally. Aye. Their mental health in the first place. And then you get, it's monetized into it after that. Like, people just, it's full of vultures, the music industry. Like, if we're talking, say, the people that signed us, signed us to their record label, and we were the, the best thing ever to them for a, for until it wasn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. And then do you know how we found we found out we'd been dropped basically? And we weren't even dropped. We were just told that we weren't they weren't financing a second record. I mean, this is like Sony, one of the biggest companies, Aye. record companies ever in the world, mate. And we got a phone call. It wasn't even for them, it was to our manager. No one spoke to us individually. Just got a phone call, that's it. Drop you like that. And were these the same people that were pumping you up and mm-hmm. telling you? Aye. So there's an as you say is like that that's similar to um I mean that's exploitation then isn't it? you're kind of talking about like you could go into it. I mean obviously there's we all know that you go into these things and you need to have a kind of level head, but if you're taking a group of young boys, putting them up there, Sony, everybody knows who Sony records are, it's like huge. How do you know by into that? Exactly. Exactly. They've got, I mean, they should have some sort of obligation to try and protect you and look after you, but they don't, they don't care. So there's nothing in the contract to say, like, um, if you fall down mentally, like, say you're at work and you go, you have a, the, the, your work will kind of look at nothing, the music industry. No, they'll, no. I mean, they couldn't care all less they'd be interested in is uh, keeping you performing, keeping you playing, and keeping you writing. Even like, so when we got dropped for the record label, uh, as much as it seemed at that point it was going to be the end for us and how heartbreaking it was, things actually took off for us after that anyway. Aye. So we did the first album. It never sold the way they expected it to sell. We got, they, they weren't going to finance the second album, right? But we were still technically signed because we'd signed like maybe like a five album deal or something Aye. like that. So technically you're still signed to them, but they're not going to give you the money for your next album. But if you make another album you're still liable to pay them the percentage, right? Oh, so, you're joking. You, you know these things, it's the, the record that I've was seen, I've seen it with rap, rappers and that, but is it similar then? Is it like, I've seen so it. We, went to, we went to Texas for a festival called South by Southwest. Um, massive music festival, like, in the industry, it's like the biggest thing. So we went over there, played that. Someone's seen us from a company called 21st Artist, which is Elton John's management company. So they wanted to sign the band. This is after we'd been dropped. Mm-hmm. Huh? So they wanted to sign the band to the management company, came back. Um, fast forward a wee bit after that. We're signed to Elton John's management company. He loves us. We're away down in London recording in his studio, recording demos for the second mm-hmm. album. He's footing the bill for everything. Like, Aye. Putting us up, we had like two flats in Kensington. The band are staying Did you just get to meet Elton John? And the high, 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 high. Uh, so they're amazing us, but we're still signed to Sony. Mm-hmm. So they're fighting a legal battle with Sony to get us out of this deal. Because so they know that if we release any music, Sony are just going to take all the money. But they're not even doing anything for the band. So we God. had to sit on all the music we were writing. We couldn't release anything. Aye, aye. We could still tour. but was, so that I can't remember how many years it was, but we went years without releasing any new music. That's horrifying. So that's obviously detrimental to the band's career as well, because... You need to be fresh. You need to be new Aye. music coming out. And obviously, eventually. as you say, it's like for you, how you obviously go and you go back to work and stuff like that, and like because you're not at that point. No, we no. The band was uh, we were doing live. We were a big live band. Aye. We were doing good live shows. We were making enough money that at that time 
could keep us alive, basically. I mean, we weren't really making a lot of money in terms of like a wage that we'd make now, but when, I, when you went on tour, you got looked after anyway, Aye. so we were fine for money. Um, and then we recorded <clears throat> the second album and we released it basically independently and it done pretty good. Aye. And we done another tour off the back of that, another good few tours off the back of that, big tours. Hey. And that's the money was coming in for the big tours. So it was keeping the band alive, you know, the band was still, even though Indeed, You've dropped. got to ask yourself, man, like, obviously this is your dream, right? And Sony have already got, like, what do they need? What do they need it for? Do you I know tell you what something mean? Like, funny. We still get, we still get like a, like a big letter through every year that tells you how much you still left. Aye, aye. When they're still owed to Sony. Obviously, you're joking. Money, aye, aye. But and they spent you... ridiculous money on stupid things for the band. Like, Did stupid, they? aye, aye, ridiculous things. You're making music videos that used to, that was all, none of that was our choice. They're making music videos, and I'm not even kidding you. We were like chauffeur driven, like five in the morning to massive sets to go and film, like, clean up your eyes music video, 50 grand music videos, like. <sighs> actors and all that and you're just like why put the money into something better but just throw money away so is there a so obviously you know your band you know your music um you know you're a good live band and all that so are they trying to commercialize you are they is that what they're trying to do they're trying to commercialize you monetize you basically but understandable that's understandable but it's just outrageous that they can hold that and no let you go and make music because I don't like saying it, Andy, but who knows where you could have went if they'd let you go to that contract and let you go well and join. Who knows where you could have ended up? Do you know what I mean? You just could, I, I mean, that must be something. It definitely held us back for years. I can't remember how long it was, but it was years. It was like, we, because basically, put it this way, we wrote, recorded, like, demo-wise, a full album, and then binned that, and then recorded another full album. That's how long it was. Like, wow. That's crazy, man. Uh, um, so I'll take you kind of back to a wee bit of a kind of a Scottish uh, memory for you. Tea in the Park, man. Like, oh, it's, obviously it isn't there anymore, but it's historical. It's everything. It's everything Scottish music could ever want. Um, what was that like? That must have been absolutely electrifying, man. Every time we played it, it was just to go better and better. So the first year we played was a tea break stage, and a friend that remembers Tea in the Park, like tea break stage. I think it was maybe a thousand capacity tent, and it was always bouncing. It was two, uh, maybe two thousand seven. Uh, like I'm bad with I'm bad with dates. Aye, aye. Mate, I'm terrible with um, But I remember so it was us and Paulinatini were like kind of just the same time coming aye. out. But he'd released something and went huge. But aye. he was also supposed to be playing the same. He was supposed to be playing uh, tea break stage aye, aye. after us. But he was then bumped up onto like the main stage during the day or something. Uh, but he honoured his place. Did he? In the tea break time. So we played. I think Fiona was there. And there was Aye. like 10,000 people trying to get Aye. in a tent for a thousand because of him. Aye. So it made it all the better for Aye. us. Aye. <laughs> like, Aye. That was good. That, so that was the first year we played. And then the second year we played Pet Sounds Arena. Aye. Which was like 8,000 capacity tent. Packed. Aye. Like, there was like one out, one in type of thing that we played. That was amazing. Because so, so obviously, good. I remember Fiona telling me a wee story. She she go backstage, past, back ways one year. Um, obviously, she went with Kevin and all that. And uh, 
so she backstage and she sees that Paul Lonatini was there and he had a bottle of wine and he was singing, it was, I'm sure it was something for the Jungle Book or something, but he was singing, he was standing inside the stage when we played the tea break one, that was the first time I'd ever met him, he was class. Is he a nice guy, aye? Oh, brilliant. Aye. Lovely guy. I love his, oh, his music's amazing, it's absolutely phenomenal, his music, and he's obviously a Scottish legend, but um, ugh, it's just, it's actually heartbreaking to hear that, I think. It's like, the more I hear about it now, like, and you, you see where he's, it's just... Um, so we, we played Pet Sounds that year, and then the year after that, we then played the Radio 1 NME stage, which is like the second biggest stage there. So that was like 36,000 people or something was there to see us that day. And that was like just another step up again. Aye. Like we we made it to the live TV show thing and all that. Aye. And uh, I remember the first song that we're going to play, basically counts in with the drums. It's like a four count and the drums and the bass slides in with the piano and the song and I slid in on the wrong note. Just nerves, mate. And it was like, boom, just this big uh, bump note and everything in the band staring at me. And I'm like, oh, fuck, no. man, that's live on telly. I remember, like, obviously, because Fiona was there, kind of, with the journey, I know she was always there, kind of, wheeze. But, but um, so, Tina Park, where did you go for? I know you played. Was it Ullap? Was it Ullapool? Or that was a big one. Other festivals like in the UK. Aye. We played every festival in the UK apart from Glastonbury. It's the only one we never played really. Is Glastonbury like? Do you need to have made it to go to Glastonbury? Aye, I think. Like, it's, yeah, it's harder to get to. Uh, to get obviously, you can. People say it's like when I talk. When you talk about Daikini, so many people remember it. So so many people always say, but you did make it. Aye. You know what I mean? Like, it's where do you level the success? Obviously, like, he's he's maybe never made it where he could have, but he's he's a huge band, man. He's were like really, really big. Um, so obviously, we we're going to go into a butted in there. So, you're obviously going to go and tell us about the other festivals. What other ones did you stay then, Andy? Well, every other uh, Redden and Leeds, uh, Redden, v Festival, just, things v like Festival. that. I just a piece of me at the time. I'm trying to remember. Now. Aye, <laughs> aye, because <laughs> at festival season you go from one to the next to the next, and we played the ones in Ireland, Oxygen, which is like aye. basically the same, same as Teen Park, and they alternate the days. I think sort of like that. So like everybody gets a ferry on. Like, aye. So we that was the year that we went with the Fratellis and they'd stop, the Fratellis were on a tour bus, and they stopped at a service station on the way to get the ferry. Aye. And I think it was Baz, the bass player, got off for a piss, and the bus would have been left them, <laughs> and they had to get him a flight <laughs> the next day. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's, I mean, obviously there's, I don't know why Tina Park stopped, I've no, I've no clue, but it was it was pretty, uh, you might actually be able to tell us, do you know why Tina Park got stopped up in Balado? Was it today with the farm or not? Like I don't know. I honestly don't really know. know. Like um, I don't. I, I don't know. Because it was a magical. It was so good, man. Ah, the part was and obviously that manager. I can't even imagine playing it, man. That just must have been. I know. Um. So after after obviously, is there anything obviously? Because obviously I'm no great with music, nor Andy. Is there anything else that I'm missing here that you that would have been a really big to kind of talk about, or anything that you would like to kind yeah, of highlight? There was a period after when we signed with the Elton John's management company, and I said things did take off for us after that. Um, again, they looked after as well. So like we would go down at Christmas time for these parties with Elton John. Elton John, did you? So it was like uh, after it was signed to Twenty First Artists, so it was like. 
James Blunt, Lily Allen, Elton John, obviously David Furnished, the AIDS Foundation at the time, was all there. Yeah. Some massive artists, Sophie Ellis Beckstar, man, it was mental. So we we went to these meals Aye. and you were in with all them, like uh, Elton John. I was walking down to the toilet and one of the things that Elton John was walking up, and we'd met him a few times and he came up to me and he grabbed me by the face and he's like, you're just part of the family. Things Did like they? that. Aye, aye, like, crazy he's like, back me, I've, I've got Christmas cards for Elton John. Like, my brother's like, <laughs> it's mad. Aye. You could tell people that, they would just be like, oh, fuck off. I know, I know. Just a guy lays bricks for a living. Aye. But I. I was I at dinner with Elton John and he sat down next to me and he ate my brother's uh, pudding because he was away to the toilet and Elton John sat down the pudding got delivered and he was like, oh, sat started eating it. <laughs> he was telling us how the night before that he had gave Alex Ferguson a lift for Manchester in his private jet to London. <laughs> just Massive football fan talking about football and all that. I think he's Elton John a big football fan, is he? Well, aye, because he, he used to own, was it Watford or something like that? Or something? Oh, that's right. He's a huge football quite. fan, aye. That's right. You just don't put Elton John and football together, like in my head there. But I know I, I definitely have seen stuff where he's where he's talking about football. So, um, do you miss it? I miss the creative side of writing with my brothers in the recording process, and then you have that finished article, or something that you know you've. Aye. And you can be really proud of something that you've got, but. I don't miss the tour on the side and all that. I've done it. It's, you know, it's it was good then. You know, a young guy and all that. But, man, I need to be in my bed for nine. <laughs> Showtime, bedtime. <laughs> I know. No, it's obviously, because you don't, you don't realise, like, the actual um, blood, sweat and tears that go into touring, didn't you know? And away from your family. And, and obviously, did, did it have restraints on, like, your relationships and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, I can't speak for anybody else in the band, but like, aye, definitely. You're a young man, you're away in tour, and like, there's lassies everywhere. And I wasn't faithful. Aye. I wasn't faithful to any of my girlfriends at the time. I'm not proud of it now, you look back on it, but it was a long time ago now, and I was a young man. Aye. It definitely put a lot of strain in your relationships, and you don't grow up. Besides, you say, um, you're not actually. You and you know at that point, I, I, if, if that makes sense, you're you. No, but I, know, I think I know what you mean. Like you're, you, you, you start to become this character that's aye. in the band. That's just this guy for the band. When it's just like I said earlier, it's just all bullshit, really. Aye. And when, where age we think Andy? When you actually went, this is fucking no for me, man. Like I don't. Were, were you, when did you realise? Because we were, me and you were both talking about. Um, the acceptance of your reality and trying to accept and obviously you've done that and uh, we're going to talk about some of the stuff you're doing now and uh, the discipline and with the MMA and stuff that you've got now and stuff but what was when was the point that you you went realistically we I need to gear this up now like you see that it's no good for mental health it's no good for this this when what age we so I'm 40 now so it was in 2017 so Maybe been about 35, 36. We were recording with the band. The band had basically broke up. We had split up and stuff like that. Then we decided we're going to go back together again. We're going to write, see what happened, see how we felt about it. And we started writing together again, and the songs were good. Like, 
we never lost that. So we wrote this bunch of songs and we went and recorded with uh, a really good producer, a guy that we knew uh, called Bruce Rintoul from Glasgow. Um, great guy, great musician. He was in some really good bands at the same time as us. And he put a slightly different edge on the band, made us a bit rockier, mm -hmm. the recording and production side there. And I was, we were really pleased with the stuff we came away with, the songs, really proud of it. And we just released it as an EP. Um, Dave McGeekin again for King Tuts, he and DF. We had a meeting with Dave. And Dave was like, songs are great. Let's put on a touch show. Aye. Touch show. We'll test the water and see if the fan base is still there. You've been mm. away for like five years or whatever it was. So we're like, cool. So they put a touch show on sale and it sold it in seconds, mate. And I remember me and Alan were at work at the time and it was a Friday morning the tickets went to sale. So we were eagerly waiting to find aye, out aye. what's happened. And before we knew it, we got a phone call. So I sold it like straight away. So they fired a second show on Aye. sale so this is the Friday the fire the Saturday in sale like sold out mate Rapid. right so then he's like right we're going to put the Sunday in sale but we're going to need to hold tickets back for your family and that because nobody's managed to get tickets <laughs> they all sold out in like seven minutes under seven minutes the three shows so that was like an indication for us we were like fuck aye definitely aye so still, and then those shows were great so we put on like a tour tour was brilliant but we all I think we'd all just moved on a wee bit in life Musically, it's, that's never, you're never going to move on for that. You're never going to move on for the music side of it. But we all had families. We were all, we were all settled in there. We all had jobs. Aye. It's different. That's when we knew. And was there an element of um, people just maybe different wavelengths on like maybe mental health, going, I don't like to go down this road again, and, and, and maybe different elements, say, can I just the remembering what how it felt before and maybe just the warning signs going, I, oh, I don't know if I could go through that again. Probably, probably Brian would have probably been, because he was the one that was like, look. I know. Let's be honest with ourselves here, guys. Like, you know. I know, I love, I, like, obviously I've only met Brian a couple of times. I love being in his company. Um, he's a absolutely great guy. And I know he's, um, he's, He's, uh, he's got his, his problems, do you know what I mean? Like everybody else, do you know what I mean? Everybody else has got their, their problems. Um, but I think when you're, you've got that kind of, as we spoke about earlier, that gift, that sometimes comes hand in hand with that kind of, like mental health kind of stuff, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? And um, I don't know, I'm trying to kind of just get to where well, that level of acceptance, where, was, it Bri was it Brian that, that, that kind of said that? Ultimately it was Brian that, that, that put the, the nail in the coffin but I mean I think we all understood we were on the same page he was Aye. just the man that said it he I I knew for years watching Brian on stage and after gigs I knew that every single time we played it was taking something away from Brian's soul Aye. although Brian was a great performer and great live and stuff like that like you could tell it was doing something to him Aye. Hard, to, hard to explain but I could see it was chipping away at him mm-hmm you know, like, and he's happy on there. I and I've, we've had like Andy McLaren on here, football player, like ex football player. We've had David Heyman on here. We've had um, or like I'm a man of like people who have had a uh, relatively huge success at some point in their life, and all of them kind of are happier now, just with, with nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, no, with nothing. They've got everything. That's mm -hmm. what the thing. Like, you, you say nothing, but. They're happy with no what they've got. Aye, no. Do you know what I mean? 
And um, I mean, Andy's a brilliant pal of mine. Do you know what I mean? I love Andy, and he's he's been really good with us with a lot of stuff. But um, he talks about like in the football, and it's the exact same story. Kind of, if you know what I mean. It's like mm-hmm. hitting the heights. Agents, young age, took away at sixteen. And then just left, and you're like, "Where else have I got here?" So mm-hmm. you turn to drink, you turn to drug. It's 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 always the same story, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's because you're no. I don't maybe a bit deep, but I don't really think that you're supposed to kind of have all that big fame, and I think that just builds you up to something that that you're just ultimately going to get broke down with. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, you look at Hollywood and that, you and you look at all these places that are absolutely rife with people mental health. That's uh, it, can... like, it is the whole, it is just all bullshit in essence, really. Aye. It really is, like, like you say, once it's all done and dusted and it's all gone, it means fuck all, it means nothing. Know. Do you know, like, when I was young, you had heroes and you had people that you looked up to, maybe like famous people, like, you know, I, I loved the Beatles or I loved Oasis Aye. and that kind of stuff. And now, as a 40-year-old guy, my heroes are other people that I, I know. Aye. You know, like, I've got, like, people for Cumberland that, that I think about every single day that shape how I try and be as a man. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they will have no idea that I even think this. Aye. Right? But, like, particularly I've got a, a friend for Cumberland who uh, lost his wife last year. Um, same age as me. And he's got a young son. And this guy, he's just an incredible guy. Aye. Incredible father to his wee boy. Like, to me, that's my hero now. Aye. You know, so like these big things, fame and what I used to look, want when I was Aye. younger in the band, I mean, fuck all. Like, it's fake, isn't it? It's yeah, like, um, you see these, I mean, obviously we're doing the podcast and you see these fucking mad influencers and obviously you try and get guests, do you know what I mean? So you try and get guests who are maybe got a wee bit of influence and stuff like that at times. And these, some of these guys, are, they've got a good build and they maybe can talk a wee bit well and they're just talking shit. But you're like, how much do you, do you want to come on the podcast? Like, and it's about 10 grand and all that. That's funny. And you're like, fucking hell, mate. Like, we're a wee podcast that just started up and you're, like asking for 10 grand you know what i mean like it's doing everything for the wrong reasons aren't they? That's really... and they're going to just come to a fall at some point Andy. and i think um the ultimate thing in life and i'll I go back but it's obviously quite spiritual but the, the buddha says the ultimate thing you have got no other um there should be no other thing in you except chasing happiness and contentness and joy um and i think once you I'm, I mean, I'm certainly nowhere near that. I would never class myself as a happy, joyful person, but I'm certainly um, much better than I have been in the past, especially like in the when I was in prison and stuff. Um, but it is, it's like, you look at like Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. Um, I mean, like you could just rhyme off so many names and you go, on the background, on the face of this, like amazing people that have got these amazing but they're so so badly damaged in the background you wouldn't have wanted their lives no that's the thing like you look at them and it's a shame really like Don would want to live that life and, and we'd you, all end up this the way they ended up living that life do you, do you think that that is what's happening as well they're just getting prepped up even the big bands are just getting prepped up by these 
record companies and and just getting like as you were talking Aye. about earlier with the view and stuff like just getting getting their drugs getting their doctors get everything's all there Aye, definitely Aye. so mm. that happens 100 because you do you go like this where why would these people why like whitney houston why, why oh, and it's so rife it's like the addiction mental health um and then a lot of people come away from fame and take a step back and that's when they find contentment that like that's when they find their contentness um so kind of moving on a wee bit for the music right where did you go after the music andy where did you where did life take you then hey uh, i had a real shit few years after the band had uh, finally broke up like um just really struggling to find myself and find my passion in life smother I, I had to i had to find another calling something else i could really get into and I can't, not even just another hobby i'm just i'm the type of person that uh i don't i'm no i'm no normal in terms of i don't just live a normal life and okay. i always need to be working hard at something and Aye. achieving something that's just like it's hardwired into me Aye. so for those three years i was doing nothing and i was just probably wasn't in a very good mental Aye. place or anything like that but then I found jiu-jitsu, obviously, and the reason I wanted to do that particular thing was obviously I liked the UFC, you know that, and that was mm -hmm. my connection to it. I had a couple of pals that did jiu-jitsu and wrestled, and they used to always say to me, you know, you need to try it, it's like, it'll change your life and all this, and I eventually did try it. I went and did a beginner's course at the Scottish Hit Squad over on Cote Bridge and hooked straight away, and it was like, it was this element of you're on your own, Mm -hmm. doing this i'd always been in a band with my brothers everything was always together mm -hmm. you were on your own in this and as i've seen in jiu-jitsu and stuff like that i said the mats don't lie you only get back what you put in mm -hmm. there's no faking it in this right you know you need to fucking work hard if you want to be mm -hmm. good at this you know like it's one of the hardest sports to start enjoying because as a relatively new person you're at white belt stage you're just going to get smashed and smashed and smashed. Aye. That's what happens. And the people with the big eagles will walk away and they'll, they'll never, they'll never progress because it's too difficult for them. So that's why I look at all my friends in jiu-jitsu and all the guys that made it to blue belt and above that, and I've got a massive respect for them because I know what they went through <laughs> to get there. Like Aye. I know how hard that was. Aye. Cause you watch, you watch. Obviously, I'm a UFC fan myself. Watching UFC, and you see, like, uh, you see, and some of the Jiu Jitsu boys aren't they great to watch. Do you know what I mean? But it's by far everyone in them will tell you it's the the ultimate kind of thing you need to know. Do you know what I mean? If you go into MMA with any kind of Jiu Jitsu, it's not the most exciting sport to watch. And the problem is, it used to be even worse, right? They're trying to make it better now with different rule sets. There's Aye. a company called ADCC, which I had just competed in no long ago. It's the biggest promotion for uh, jiu-jitsu and grappling in the world. Um, they're changing the rule sets to make it more appealing to people that don't compete in it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of it you'll know understand when you're watching it. Aye. And I get that. It can be really Aye. boring. It can be. Uh, even sometimes I'm watching a lot of it and I'm like, that is it's just way too boring, you know, like, stand them up, man, make them fight a bit. Like, uh, it's an art form, isn't it? Definitely. It's, 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 um, it's physical chess, basically. That's mm -hmm. that's basically what it is. It's, um, you, you're forcing somebody else into making a mistake that you can capitalise on. And the better you get, 
normally I'm a blue belt. I'm way mm-hmm. at the beginner stage right. as in terms of jiu-jitsu. Like you start to lay traps for different submissions or different things right. like sweeps and all that. And it's beautiful, man. So do you get an enjoyment out of kind of watching like UFC then? Would you like obviously Khabib and all that, but you would probably say he's pro I don't know. People say he's one of the best kind of grapplers. Yeah. Um so would you I didn't like watching Khabib, I like John Jones and I like Ngannou and uh, stuff, do you know what I mean? But would you can you watch that and see that for him in that when he's kind of I definitely, but I, but still, when I watch the UFC, I'd rather see Sunday get knocked out. I've still got, I've still got that caveman about me. Come on, but uh, I do watch a lot of grappling, um, and I do enjoy the grapplers like in the UFC. Obviously, we've got Big Paul Craig, who is uh, the most dangerous grappler in the UFC roster, one hundred percent. I mean, guy, machine, I'm good friends with Paul. And I've actually talked to one of my training partners before I came in here about Paul, and we were saying the amount of times that guy's nearly causes a heart attack because Paul was taking dunes for <laughs> 15 minutes solid uh-huh. and then whipped a submission at the bag in the last second. Uh-huh. And he's beat people that that's their only loss. Uh-huh. He's beat the Jamal Hill. He, he dislocated his shoulder, broke his arm. Uh, that guy never beat before. Aye. He was supposed to beat Paul. Aye, aye, that would have made it happen. <laughs> that was never. Then he went on to be the champion. Aye. And he beat a big guy called Dan Kalayev, who never been beat. Aye. He beat Paul up for 15 minutes straight, and in the last like four seconds of the fight, Paul throws up a triangle aye. and submits the guy. It seems to be his hang. He's just aye. like, oh, stop doing this. Some people in the last four seconds. <laughs> but that's jiu-jitsu, man. It's such a dangerous sport. Like, I know. Even at my level, competing... Three months ago at ADCC, and I got put in a submission, which is called a heel hook. And I, I've came away with it kind of lucky, to be honest with you, because usually what it does is it blows your knee up. Like the it? MCL, your ACL, everything's right. destroyed in your knee. But it was my ankle that got most of it, completely turned my ankle the opposite way, ripped right. everything in it. I've still not been back at training since. Um, I'm just starting to make a bit of recovery on it, but I, that's how. I know, because obviously we, I was talking to you about coming on here. It just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. And um, so obviously see like, while, that ha- while that's happened, did, did, did your mental health drop again when your eyes? So it's, yeah. there's obviously a recurring theme there, isn't there? When mm-hmm. you're no doing something, Andy, you're no like committed into something that, and it's not it's, your fault. Had it, none of it's been in- your fault, if you know what I mean, really. Well, I had an interesting conversation with a guy that, I'm kind of, he, he trains ways sometimes and I'm pals him on social media and that, but he's a really smart guy and really philosophical. Aye. And we were having a chat on Instagram and he said to me, be careful, you're no masking other stuff with training because you know, I was struggling with it training. Mm-hmm. Um, my mental health had took a big dip and it made me think about it and it's made me address and sort of dig deep to find find the issues and start addressing things properly, mm-hmm. which I have been doing mm-hmm. because uh, jiu-jitsu won't always be there. I might be injured. There might be periods of my life. I won't be mm-hmm. family life. will take up my time. I'll not be competing. So I can't have these demons no. knocking at the door. So I, that conversation I had with this particular guy made me think a lot about that. I think um, what people get wrong is that addiction comes in many forms. You mention addiction, people automatically go to drugs, um, drink. drugs, drink. And obviously you've not had the drug side, Andy, but you've had gambling, you've had alcohol, um, 
and by the sounds that you've maybe had a wee bit of the addiction to the gym as well, do you know what I mean, with mm-hmm. the, the jiu-jitsu. So, one of my, well, I, don't, I don't think I've done a podcast with mentioning him, do you know what I mean, but Gabber Matty, he just says that any, any kind of thing that you do to an extent that it causes harm, but you can't stop doing it as an addiction, and you're always masking something. So, I mean, obviously your demons cut, is it for the band? Is it still that kind of, are you, are you addressing that now and going, no, I know it's maybe something else or like? <clears throat> I think delving really deep into it, I think mostly it comes from my childhood and then the band, things that happened with the band never helped matters. Aye. Like uh, my own father, basically my real father, who passed away five years ago now, but he was kind of like in and out my life, Aye. in and out my life all growing up. And it's even hard for like my parents. Mm-hmm. Like my stepdad is my dad, right? Oh, he's a, but it's hard for my parents to even understand the damage that that left on me. Because they'd be like, I but you never missed out. You never missed out. And I never. Like, They've done everything for me. Like I've I never know. missed out in my life. But that's not the point. No. It's like, I never had the same stability with my real father as mm-hmm. I should have had. And then you're, you're a kid, you don't understand, you know. Totally. I don't know why he's left. I don't mm-hmm. know why he doesn't come and see me. I don't know why some weekends he's not turned up to pick me and my brother up. And Aye. I mean, that definitely left a lot of damage on me. Massive. Definitely. Insecurities through my whole life. You can you can never, ever underplay um, adverse childhood experience. I mean, we, we had the, a guy, I call him the Scottish Gabber, Matty, James Dockery, who um, knows trauma inside out, and trauma uh, goes hand in hand with AC. It's called AC's adverse childhood experiences, and uh, amb- abandonment is massive. And I think a lot of people, and obviously I know your man, and your man's an absolutely beautiful person. Do you know what I mean? But she will probably not be seen. She she's just seen it for like I gave gave you everything, but it's got nothing to do with them. No. It's your connection to your dad that you can't understand why he's no wanting to be part of your life like mm-hmm. you, it's as a wee guy you're like what what is it is it is something i'm doing so you're probably trying to do stuff even maybe subconsciously to try and get him to recognize you Definitely. if that makes sense and it was it ended up like in a trait that i still kind of possessed to be honest with you of like see with people that don't show me attention, I then try and battle for their attention. Aye. And it's a subconscious thing. And sometimes mm-hmm. I recognise myself doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's obviously where it's, it's come from. But then he died. I'd tried to, all through my life, you know, I'd contact sometimes and then sometimes mm-hmm. he wouldn't bother. But then he moved away to England and he'd float in and out my life, same my brother. But then he seemed to settle a wee bit and we had a wee bit of a better relationship and then he died. But Aye. in my head... I always thought we would sort things out, you know. Aye. You always think time's in your side and it's really not. No. Because you don't know. But it's going to happen to any of and I should have addressed it before that. And then when he died, that opened up a whole new can of worms because I then I had this, I never made my peace with him. Aye. And then I felt guilt for a long time after he passed away because I felt like I should have let him know that it's all right. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Like I knew he felt guilty about my childhood Aye. and how things were was. And then, you know, I kind of beat myself up for a long time because I never 
done anything about it. And I know now it's not my fault. No, not no, at all. Like, that was probably part of my grief as well. Aye. I think when you've got that kind of relationship and it's um, somebody floating in and out your life that should be there, um, it's never your fault, do you know what I mean? Like, you can never ever take... But you will take blame, like, as a child, and then it's very hard to... Because as a child, you're like a sponge. You can you take everything in. So you, you'll you have been subconsciously taking in that... that your dad didn't want you. Do you know what I mean? That's that's subconsciously what you're thinking. Do you know what I mean? And it's a it's um, a testament to yourself and your family that you're the man you are. Because I know a lot, a lot of people who are body in addiction, drug, um, and it's abandonment issues and stuff like that. They just we spoke about it earlier again, as we say, about acceptance and accepting reality as it is. And it's very hard today. And if you can increase your awareness to a level where you can ex- you can go. I can't change that. There's nothing I can do. You're actually doing amazing because a lot of people can't reach that stage, Andy. I know. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a testament to you and your family that um, you're the man you're the day. Um, <clears throat> so uh, obviously, one thing I would can I just add to that. Aye, aye. So I don't call my stepdad. He's my dad. Brian, as you know, Brian. Um, me and Alan have been completely lucky that we had him in our lives he he filled any void that was ever left of him even to the point where that we're all bricklayers for him he's a bricklayer was, you know like yeah uh, so that's probably what kept that's probably what kept things on a an even kind of keel for us you know like i think if he was in our lives if we never had that family stability Aye. he worked hard when we were younger like Aye. he's a bricklayer and he worked super hard we'd be going holidays every year every gave us everything that we ever Aye. needed you know, so we're super lucky that we had that. No, it's, it's like, you know, as you say, you've had wee blips and and, and you've had wee but nothing like the, I've seen damage when people don't have fathers, do you know what I mean? And it's yep. it's no, certainly no and uh, close to what you're experiencing, but you still get it, it's still there. It's impossible not to feel, do you know what I oh, mean? And it's never a, a diss on um, anybody, do you know what I mean? But we can do that. We can easily revert to blaming ourselves and all that i mean i I, like some of the shit i've been through like fucking hell it's like you're i don't know you're just like yeah actually go like why am i like beating myself up like this do you know what i mean um you would if it was like somebody else was talking to you the way that you talk to yourself you'd be like fuck off do you know what i mean like you you wouldn't have them in your life (laughs) do you know what i mean you'd be like that bastard miles away from me man but we do that we keep that in our head and we do play it um our own kind of thingies and it is just trying to get that and i've said it before that level of acceptance is a massive step in that direction and it's yeah i don't think MD's ever the, the finished article i don't me personally i think everybody's nah. always still i think if you think you're the finished article there's something wrong aye, aye. you should always be striving for better and Definitely. just even know, jesus and that fucking strive be to be better didn't they aye. jesus and the buddha and all that can these are these people um so When's your next? When so when are you which when are you going to be back at training? Then when are you going to be back? So I've still been keeping myself active, fit, lifting weights, all that. Um, I'm I'll be looking to get back into training jiu-jitsu after Christmas, hopefully in the new year. Um, the reason I took so long off was that I didn't want to go back and then make it even worse again because no. this is a bad injury. This is a bad one, and I can't afford that injury to affect my employment, no. my work either. I'm self-employed, obviously, so I had to be smart about it. Next year, I'm hoping for a big year in terms of competition-wise. Uh, 
I want to go, obviously I'm 40, be 41 in March coming. I'm competing against a lot of younger guys, right? Mm -hmm. But I can go into categories in competitions that are older for uh, Masters, they call it. I want to go and do the Masters at the Euros next year. Aye. Really test myself. So if I can get the ball rolling with training after Christmas and the New Year, that's my focus. That's going to be my aim. Well, we, I would love to come and see you if if that's if you're doing that and he gives a shout, that'd be brilliant. I'd love to come and see you, and I'll, de I'll, I'll definitely be wanting to come and see one of your fights soon anyway. Um, so just as we're kind of coming up to the end, a big question for you here, right? I'll, I'll put you on the spot here. What's more nerve-wracking, going into the ring, going into the octagon, or going into the the, the going live on T in the park or at King Touch? What's <laughs> what's more nerve-wracking? Good question. Um, well, um, I think I think the walking out and you're going to fight someday. Aye. And it's n it's not because you you think you're going to get hurt or anything like that. It's um, you don't want to get beat in front of your pals. <laughs> 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 that's what it is. Like, it's just you. Aye. It's just you. I think that's worse. Aye, definitely. Aye. I mean, at ADCC, I've done two big matches back to back. One weekend, Wolverhampton, I think called Northern Submission Series, which is a guy called Cal Pacino, Cal, Cal Eleanor puts that show on, amazing big show. I fought one of his guys in Wolverhampton the week before and we had a great match, great fight, and I won that one. The week later, I came up against arguably one of the blue best blue belts in the UK, the new boy called Mitch Oley. And we knew his strong points, we knew what he was good at, we knew the leg lock game was going to be a dangerous thing for me and... Nobody, other people, nobody really wanted to go up against this boy. Don't care what they say, people say, I never got offered that matchup. I know Fuck other off. people aye. did, and they all said no. I wasn't the first choice. They've came to me, and I've said aye, because I wouldn't have turned on Andy. Um, but it was a big step up for me, getting him. Did you feel it? Like the big step when up? I was, when I walked out that night at ADCC, I didn't feel like I was out of place. I knew that there was elements in my game that were stronger than his game. Mm-hmm. And it was elements of his game that were stronger than mine. And I knew that where I had to get him, and it was it was millimetres in it, you know. Aye. I was almost where I wanted to be. Aye. Until I wasn't there. Millimetres the difference, but in it, and that's yes. brought into it. And it was like that. You heard it rip and put an upset. He done snap? what he's good at. Aye. Aye. Oh, uh, fair play to him. Aye, I know you. Do you know, you know that's the well, well, just just as we're finishing up, um, just what you said there, right? Fair play. It's amazing to see fighters, and it's more MMA because boxing a lot of shit talk and a lot. And I'm not saying you get it at the high end of UFC as well, but just here even saying that and having that respect for that guy who's hurt you. Do you know what I mean? And he's not meant to do that. To you, do you know what I mean? He's not meant us. to get you in a Um but just to have that respect for somebody, what would you, like, obviously like I'm a big supporter of like young boys and stuff going into that sport and people would go, oh, what, you're teaching boys to fight and all that and boys that are on the street and stuff like that, do you think um, it would be worthwhile for like a government program to maybe start looking at young boys that are offending and stuff like that to maybe look into going into martial arts? Would you say that would be something that would yes, could, could take? definitely. I think that it should be. In schools, I think the what it teaches you is it's priceless. Like, 
a young man, father, son. I'll do the same with my girls who have the opportunity to train as well. But particularly for young men, teenagers, young boys, if you are, if you've got confidence within yourself and your physical capabilities, you're not going to be afraid when you're walking down the street. But you're also not going to feel the need to prove yourself. And when you're a teenager, and all those daffy fights you get in was all about proving yourself. Mm -hmm. See, when you know you don't need to prove yourself, I know fifteen-year-old boys that wrap me up, mm -hmm. and they'll be the best-behaved boys in school, Aye. and they'll walk away for a fight, mm -hmm. and they're confident in themselves to do that. Squashes your ego, it teaches you discipline, your mental clarity, your mental health, and your physical performance. Like I'm fatter than I've ever been. Aye, you've seen the shape oh, of my We'll try and get a couple of photos up for you. That's all for training. There's nothing bad comes from it. Aye, people have this thing where they think it's bad. You know, fighting or the US, you are terrible. It's in a cage and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's like. Some of the smartest, most intelligent people in there, mm -hmm. and they've put their whole life and soul into learning an art form. Mm -hmm. It's not barbaric. It's not. No, and I think um, when you look at bar barbaric and it's on the streets and guys have got whatever weapons and stuff like that, and they're used in, in gang fights, they're involved in this. Taking some, taking that away, and being able to train in a gym with a guy that you can watch, and it's teaching you, it's grounding you. It's um, it's teaching you. Uh, I mean, look at Mike Tyson and stuff like that. And I know that was like a custom battle with him and, and and stuff. But you see stories like that quite a lot, where guys have been took by somebody who's um, just exceptionally gifted at, at, at presenting themselves to young people, because it's a hard thing to present yourself to a young person and, and tell them what to do. Connect with them. Aye, and connect. So these guys are masters at that. Do you know what I mean? Because you see it all the time. Like, all the, as you say, the young boys that are all in there, they're no involved in gangs, they're no street partying and doing this. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it's something that we, I would always say, and I, I don't even think anybody's ever looked at it, to be honest, to go, should we be some sort of programme? where? And I think people would kick it off. You'd have the, the usual media outlets going, you're teaching them a, a sport, these dangerous youngsters are... I know, which is, which is mad because, like, even when it comes down to the social aspect of it, all these young guys and young girls that I train with, like, very, hardly even drink alcohol. Aye. Definitely don't touch drugs. Aye. No, these people, like, live for that. They're Aye. healthy people. They look after their bodies. Aye. And uh, just one real aspect, because you may have a wee bit of knowledge, just something that I'm probably more interested to be honest, but... Looking at the UFC and all that, and you've got talk about steroids and all that, right? Um, and I've heard Nate Diaz a lot calling out people and saying, like, they're using steroids and it, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that is there a problem in the, the kind of what that world where? Nah. 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 I think it's a scapegoat for a lot of people to say somebody's in steroids. Like, that guy beat me just because he was just like, I beat Aye. you because he's better skills. Like, I, I could prove that in terms of like, you could get a 70 kilo guy with would smoke a 90 kilo bodybuilder, a hundred kilo bodybuilder. Aye. Muscles don't win your fights. <laughs> no. And that hoist grace. You can go and watch his first fights and see that. Aye. Uh, no, listen, is there anything else you'd like to get? I'll just give the last kind of thing to you, Andy. Like what I always kind of try and do is obviously this 
is trying to put, always put up a positive message. So see for anybody, you've been at the heights of music, you've 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 been to places that a lot of us would have dreamt to. What would you say to anybody that's kind of they're struggling, um, maybe with their own mental health, can he can he kind of pick reality? What would you say to somebody that's kind of struggling out there? Is family, if you're struggling, if you're like if your mental health's dipped or if you're just finding a tough time, like family is the way forward. Like seek medical help, obviously, right. whatever you're doing, but stay close to your family. Like it's the most soothing thing for any soul. Right. If you've got a good support network running about you and your family, like you know, my family's like with me, my right. sister, and that, like it's irreplaceable. Right. No. Well, listen, Andy. Brilliant to have you here on social sessions, man, and hopefully maybe get you again. Um, and we'll keep people up to date with your fights and stuff like that. Love it, brilliant. Mate. Right, thank Thanks you very much. Mate.